Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration, our first DC Spotlight of the new year. Uh, this is for January 3rd, relatively smaller week this week, which is good since last week was a last two weeks were, were just monstrous. So uh, <laughs> overall, I, uh, I was a little underwhelmed this week. Nothing really blew me away. I don't know. What do you think, Rock? Well, uh, I guess proportionally, I, I it was I thought it was a good week. I, I enjoyed I, I enjoyed well considering we're only reviewing actually we're only reviewing six, seven comics this week, so as opposed to eighteen or whatever it was last week. So I enjoy, I really I actually quite enjoyed three for sure this week. But um I you know I enjoyed it. I and, and I just finished reading them too, because I know that you're waiting patient patiently for me to finish reading them so we could start this but uh i i enjoy i enjoyed it i thought i think this is a nice way to start off uh 2023 just a few comics because we're still probably all hung over from new year's it is only january it's actually january 2nd today today is my birthday so uh you know I'm, I, yes i'm uh, f- i'm 54 years old and uh, it's nice to you know ring in you know my new year's resolutions i got up at 6 30 this morning i started working out that was my, that's my new year's resolution to, to lose my beer belly which i've gotten because i generally tend to drink too much crown and sometimes it's i obviously it's your fault because i do these reviews with you and i probably yeah, drink too 100%. much yeah so it's all your fault so i'm trying to change that but uh but in any event uh, no it's I, I think it was a good way to start off the week yeah, I only have one. I don't really make resolutions, but I, I, I say, and I say this every year. Once again, my goal in 2023 is to make notes on books as I read them weekly. So when I go to do the best of episode every year, I'm not having to thumb back through, you know, a thousand comics to figure out my favorite moment of the year and, and all that. So I, I made the same statement last year, didn't do it. <laughs> so we'll see this year if I find any better at it. So anyway, let's dive into the books. Uh, just a reminder, everybody, that we're this this does have spoilers. It seems to be what you guys want and what you enjoy. So if you're looking for spoiler-free, go read the books, come back, um, or listen to New Comics Wednesday, where we don't talk about the DC books there on the comic source, but uh, that one is spoiler-free. So that being said, Dark Knights of Steel, number nine of 12. So we're three-quarters of the way through this, written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Yasmin Putri, colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Wes Abbott. I feel like it's been quite a while since we've had an issue of this. I had to kind of jog my memory to remember what happened. And I went, oh, yeah, that's right. At the end, we saw uh, Lara L., Superman's mother, use her heat vision and her, her super strength and literally pull Hippolyta in half on the battlefield right outside Castle L., and we were all shocked and it was kind of a cliffhanger and like, what the heck's going on? And I have to admit, I'll give Tom Taylor credit. I did not see this coming. So I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag again. Spoilers right now. Um, the out of character Superman that we saw, Kal-El, young Kal-El, um, doing what he did. Um, the Laura doing what she did. Um, the, the Supergirl version in this world, um, supposedly killing Jefferson Pierce's son. Uh, none of those were actually who they appeared to be. They were all white Martians. And I, I don't know how I feel about this necessarily, but it turns out in this version, in this corner of the DC multiverse, Alfred is actually John Jones. He's actually Martian Manhunter. 
Tom Taylor has mashed up the two characters. Um, I don't hate it, to be honest, um, but I don't love it either because uh, I, I really like Alfred. I'm, I've come to find since he was killed off, God, it's been three years ago now um, that he was killed up, maybe going on four years. Yeah. Um, that I really miss. And, and granted, we've had plenty of other Alfred stories in Batman Urban Legends. And even we haven't had the Pennyworth series. And he supposedly came back and we found out it wasn't really him in, um, in the Lazarus Island prelude, Batman versus Robin. Uh, but what I've come to find, man, I, I really like Alfred as a character. So I kind of, in a, in a way this sort of diminishes him, right. By mashing him up with another character. Like I wish he kind of stood on his own. But at the same time, it's kind of an intriguing idea that Martian Manhunter would be subservient, you know, and would kind of hide himself as this uh, assistant to Batman. So, uh, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, but, yeah, I, I do – and I do like this idea. Again, I didn't see it coming. It's kind of hard to predict what Tom Taylor is going to do because this is a brand new corner of the multiverse and, you know, he's got a lot of creative freedom to do whatever. But, yeah, and no, at no point did I ever think, well, maybe these aren't really – the people that you think they are and they're actually, uh, you know, alien imposters, body snatchers, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I did, I didn't mind that, but at, at the other, on the other hand, it's also like, that's a two edged sword, this idea of complete creative freedom. Cause the story can kind of feel at times like it's all over the place without really much direction. And much like DC versus vampires in no way, when we get to the 12th issue of this and, and three more issues, do I think we're going to get an end to the story? This thing's been selling way too well and it's been way too popular and received critical acclaim. So, you know, DC is going to keep milking this. Um, and that bothers me a little bit because I want, I, I like contained stories, right? Like I, I, when it comes to this idea of this separate world and this is how kind of the origin story or first introduction to the world, give me like a complete, 12 issue story that has a beginning, middle and end. Um, but I mean, like I said, we're three quarters of the way through and we're just finding out the white Martians are on earth. Uh, like there's no way to finish that. That's that opens up a you know whole new story that could be 12 issues all on its own. So no way do I expect this to finish up in, uh, in three more issues. The other thing, like, and I have to think about the timing of this, right? Um, like when was this drawn or whatever? It's probably like right as we were heading into the holiday season. Because the art here feels a little bit rushed to me. It's not bad by any means. It's just n not quite up to the level that it was in the early issues, I feel like. Uh, it feels a little bit crowded on the page, and the line work's not quite as sharp. But it's a minor nitpick. Overall, this is enjoyable. Um, but, you know, I do have some misgivings about about the story. So I imagine you probably liked it better than me, Rocky. What, what are your thoughts? Uh I thought this this was a fun issue. This was a fun issue. This was action-packed, I tell you what. First, I'm going to tell you what I love about it. What I love about it is just how action-packed it was. You know, Prince Kalal is, uh, manages to has some help escaping from prison because he sort of surrenders himself uh, because, uh, because he... Uh, he 
doesn't believe he's guilty of of doing what he's been what what his, what the kingdom of L has been accused of, and we ultimately discover in this issue that it is in fact the result of uh, an alien invasion, essentially of of shape shifting Martians who are shape shifting and are taking the form of various heroes in these various kingdoms that are in a Game of Thrones type of fashion, sort of manipulating events to foster war and destruction uh, in the in the in all the in all the kingdoms themselves, playing the kingdoms off against each other. And I really like how uh, uh, Prince Kalal confronts who he thinks is his mother. And of course, his mother, uh, Laura, uh, who was actually a shapeshifter, viscerally absolutely cut Hippolyta in half. There is an absolutely epic uh, scene, beautifully rendered uh, of Wonder Woman, uh, young Diana, you know, Diana, you know, holding what's, well, I mean, there's really nothing left of her mother. (laughs) She's absolutely devastated. And she says, Amazon's attack. And it's just absolutely epic. And she hits Kal-El super hard. And it's, it's just really visceral. I love the action. It was, it's, there's a lot that happens in this issue. And I loved, I loved reading it. I loved even Amanda Waller. Our prince is down. Soldiers of kingdom of the kingdom onto the field. I mean, and then there's just it's really, uh, you know, it's funny how you mentioned the art. I, I thought the art really shone here in some particular pages. You know, uh, Amanda Waller leading the charge of the of the elves. L knights, you know, into battle against the Amazons. I thought it really worked. I thought it was fraction packed. I love this. Now, simultaneously, my criticism is that we're only at issue nine, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I generally like when stories get to the point, but I kind of wanted this Game of Thrones to maybe last a little longer. I didn't want this. It, it felt a little bit convenient that the that the shapeshifters are being revealed all right now so soon out of the gate i would have liked to have seen maybe the chess pieces move around the board a little bit more before we get this massive reveal although let's face it a lot of us are we, we sort of guessed that maybe it was shapeshifters or, or we martian manhunter was what was one of the guesses early on in terms of who was really you know what was really going on behind the scenes so i think what we're going to end up now is sort of like a medieval uh you know, secret invasion, if you will, but uh, DC style, medieval style. And because now we have all these alien or these, these Martian shapeshifters, uh, basically what's their end game? Why, why have they come to earth? We know Alfred is in fact uh, a benevolent Martian, a green Martian. I'm, I'm guessing by the looks of the Martians that were killed, that they're actually white Martians. In fact, they, they are white Martians. And we know that traditionally in DC lore on, on, on Mars, uh, John Jones's arch enemy were the the Green Martians versus the White Martians, and so here we got um, presumably I don't know what the what 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 the mythology is in in Dark Knights of Steel. It hasn't been established yet, but is is Alfred in fact the lone green? Uh, is he the lone green Martian that survived? And what's his relationship with the white Martians? Why are the white Martians attacking Earth? Uh, so all these things have yet to come to the forefront. But I like it. I, I kind of wish it was a little, that the reveal wasn't this quick. But at the same time, it's just Tom Taylor moving the pieces across the board enough till we get to the next chapter. So I, I, I quite enjoyed this. This was I think this is a lot of fun. And we, we still have three issues left. So, I'm you know, I know this is just likely the first chapter, but I kind of like that we're hitting the gun gun running on the one handed issue nine. And yet simultaneously, as I said, I know I'm kind of a hypocrite. Paradoxically, I'm sort of I kind of wanted this to drag out a little bit more because I'm really enjoying this series. So we'll see. 
I don't know, three quarters of the way in before we find out. I mean, Jefferson Pierce's son got killed like back in issue three, I think, or maybe even two. So yep. he did take his time, but yeah. I, I get your point. Like, because it goes back to what I was saying about, okay, now that it's, it has been revealed that there are white Martians, it, it's become this huge story that's probably yeah. take like six issues to tell. So if you put it in that context, revealing, you know, that they're white Martians and they're behind everything in issue nine of 60, <laughs> that is pretty early. If you think of it as nine of 12, it's, you know, much later. So. Yeah. But in, uh, in, in, in defense too, I, I think that that's just a credit to Tom Taylor's character work. Cause I've, I've really enjoyed the character work in this series so much. So that's why it really does feel like a game of Thrones in DC medieval uh, times. Yeah. hundred, hundred percent. So, all right. Well, up next we have uh, part one of the one minute war uh, in flash number 790. This is from writer Jeremy Adams. Pencils are by Roger Cruz. Inks by Matt Banning and Wellington Diaz. Colors by Luis Guerrero and letters by Rob Lee. Uh, Jeremy talked about this, teased it a little bit when he was on the show recently. And uh, this is his big, uh, big event. And we, we get thrown right into the middle right from the start. So what did you think of this, uh, this kickoff for this event, this flash event? I, this is, this is Jeremy Adams. He's, he's putting all the pieces in place right here because uh, uh, in actual fact, I, I was, I, I was, this is going to come out wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was a little bit underwhelmed upon first reading it, but then I realized upon a second read because I, that really, this is all set up. This entire issue is, frankly, I reevaluated, and this is set up. It's putting all the all the flashes in place because we get, uh, you know, Wally West is at a picnic, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the invasion begins. Something is something changes. Everybody freezes except him because of his connection to the Speed Force. Max Mercury during one of his adventures, uh, is traveling to the future. All of a sudden, everything freezes. Uh, but he's he's unaffected by it because he's part of the freeze uh, Speed Force. Uh, Jesse Quick is having it is stopping uh, stopping a robbery, and suddenly suddenly this the attack begins. The attack of this alien race called the Fraction, and led by this. Uh, an empress and her colony that have conquered worlds before. And they clearly utilize and they work at uh, ex exceedingly top speeds at, at high uh, supersonic speeds beyond likely connected to the speed force in some way, I, I'm guessing. But it's what I love about this is that this is truly a war. It's an invasion that it's uniquely suited for a defense team made up of the flashes because all the flashes from Wallace West to Impulse who end up... Uh, uh, getting together, Jay Garrick, who's at a bar, sort of, uh, he's kind of depressed in a bar, remembering old times, and then, and then at the end, Barry Allen is uh, is on a date with Iris, and they're talking about, you know, finally tying, you know, Iris proposes to Barry at the end, and talking about finally tying the knot, and uh, you know, moving forward with their lives, because you know, we Wallace West, you know, uh, pardon me, Wally and and uh, Linda, they got kids already, and you know, and Iris is wondering, Barry, when are we going to tie it? And she proposes but then but then the attack begins and and iris get looks like iris gets injured and and even the attack it's so sudden and the, that's and i think what works here is what works here is the suddenness of it 
And it was a little bit jarring at first, but then I'm saying to myself, what's well, a one minute war? It should be jarring. This is the way it's, it's maybe supposed to be. It's like, boom. It's like, this is, these are just all, all these flashes, all of them, these flashes that we know and love the entire flash family. They're just going about their day. They're going about their day with their loved ones, whether it's at a picnic or fighting crime or whatever. And all of a sudden, boom, in a microsecond, everybody freezes except them. And they find themselves in the midst of this massive attack involving undoubtedly a very super speed, super powered uh, alien race known as the fraction. And, there's this spinning top and, you know, admittedly, if I got one, one little criticism here, and I don't even know if it's a criticism, I, I was expecting a different style of art. Now, I know Ro Roger Cruz here does a very good job. There are scenes here where, uh, honestly, where there's in some of the explosions, particularly one that where, where uh, Barry is trying to protect Iris. I mean, it's, it's a beautifully rendered page. And yet there's other pages that I thought were, uh, I don't know. I thought it was a little bit, maybe a little bit too simplistic, a little bit, uh, not, you know, maybe a little, a little bit more animated uh, or more, what I would consider like DC animated as opposed to, um, well, as opposed to a, more of a, a DC traditional house style. But in any event, that's a nitpick. The bottom line here is that I did enjoy this. I enjoyed it much more on a second read and third read. And this is a, I can't wait to see what happens next because now with, with everybody frozen and I'm assuming that most superheroes on the planet, they're all frozen as well. And that it's only because of their special connection to the speed force that allows them to still be soldiers in the defense of Earth, uh, the planet earth against this invasion by the fraction. And so I'm, uh, I'm impressed. I mean, uh, again, I, you know, I wish the art was a little bit uh, different, but uh, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh. What do you think? You're on mute. Sorry there. Yeah, I agree with you that it, it was, first of all, it was action-packed and it moved very, very quickly. But again, it's a one-minute war, so you, you sort of expect that. Obviously, we know this is actually probably going to play out over, I think it's going to be a couple months, six weeks or so. Uh, Flash is coming out twice a month, I think, uh, for January and February. So, you know, it's going to take a little time to, to actually play out. But in terms of, you know, just the average person, like how long does this war last for the, the average person? I think, yeah, it's it's going to last basically one, one minute for anybody who is, you know, in, in the DC universe that's not a, a member of the Flash family that is going to, um, it's going to experience this. So... You know, from that perspective, it, it makes sense that it would it would take, you know, as long as it as long as it would take, uh, which is only a, a minute, but a, a lot longer um, for the Flash family, as it were. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it did feel a lot like setup. I sort of expected it to feel like setup, to be honest with you. Um, we did get some good character moments. Uh Apparently, Roy and Donna at the barbecue at the the West family home, um, which I thought was fun and interesting. And somebody said something about it on Twitter, and Jeremy Adams was like, "Well, you know, I got to get my my ships in there." So apparently, he he thinks um, Roy and Don, and Donna Troy would make a really good couple. So uh, take that for for what you will. So as far as the art goes, yeah, I I enjoyed the art as well. Uh, I do think that Roger Cruz's style does 
or did suit his run on Robin a little better because the characters there are kind of younger, less established because he does have a very youthful style. Um, and it's not to say that it doesn't work here, but it's just, you know, these are especially like uh, you mentioned Jay Garrick. I know at first glance that that was Jay Garrick without the context of the the story because mm. he does look younger than I'm you know used to him looking. But, but overall I enjoyed this, uh, but yeah, it is, it is just the first issue of this war. Um, like I said, we get thrown right in the middle, like first page opens up and there's this, this race called the fraction. Um, and so what does that mean? I mean, last time we, I saw the word uh, fraction mentioned that was going to be Irie's um, superhero name. I was like, wait, what? Maybe. And I mentioned that to Jeremy Adams when he was on the show and he's like, well, the fraction may not mean what you, what you think it means. So who is this race of aliens? What are they after? They seem to want to do some sort of culling, you know, is it this whole idea of, you know, too many people in the, in the galaxy, in the universe, whatever, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but an intriguing start. (laughs) And probably my favorite thing about it is the fact that, like Rocky mentioned, we get all these different speedsters, right? They're all going to play a role. Um, I don't think – I certainly don't remember. Like we haven't really had the, the Earth Zero Barry Allen in this story. We had Wally and the rest of the speedsters looking for Barry. Um, and I think when he when they finally found him, it was actually in another one-shot. It wasn't in this, the main title. So seeing Jeremy Adams actually write Barry, kind of interesting. Um, I love that Iris is the one to propose, you know, Iris, she, oh, we know she always wore the pants in that relationship or does wear the pants in that relationship. So I appreciated that characterization as well. Um, but brutal scene, Iris could be hurt, maybe fatally. I guess we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out with the, the cliffhanger ending there. So yeah, a good start, but yeah, cer- certainly set up for once. I'm glad that we're getting a book, um, that's going to come out more than once a month. I'm usually not a fan of that. Cause it's just too much. But if this is the amount of story we're going to get in each one, then I'm, I'm all for it. And I, I've said this a lot, and this was certainly the case, no more so than when um, DC Rebirth started and Action Comics was coming out twice a month. I feel like you don't quite get a full issue of story like you would when a book comes out monthly, right? It's almost like subconsciously the writer thinks, oh, I have another book coming out in two weeks. Um and you end up getting what I feel is about like 75 to 80% of a story. And so if you add the two books up together, it's more story than you would normally get in a monthly book, but it's less than you would get in two issues, if that makes sense. And again, I think, I don't know if it's subconscious that they do that, or maybe I'm just reading into it that way. Um, but yeah, I would have loved to, you know, another three or four pages here to just push the story a little bit more, give me a little more context. But um, yeah, minor nitpick. I'm enjoying this. Uh, and I know Jeremy's put his all into it, so can't wait to see where it goes. Um, you know, it might be one of those things where this is a, a you know, a flash centric event and it'll read best, you know, all in one sitting in a trade or, or what have you. But yeah, great to see all the speedsters, Jesse Quick and um, Wallace and Impulse Bart, you know, uh, so we'll see where it goes. Uh, okay, up next we have Gotham City Year One, number four, written by Tom King. Pencils are by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Jordan Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, so we know last issue that uh, Slam Bradley found the little Wayne baby, Helen Wayne, deceased, buried in the backyard somewhere. So this issue starts off with the commissioner of Gotham City PD, who Slam later in the issue 
goes out of his way to remind us is not corrupt at all. Like the guy might be a fascist and he might be brutal and have, um, you know, harsh methods because he wants to keep Gotham city free of crime, but he's not, you know, he's not corrupt. He's not on the take. He doesn't look the other way and allow crimes to happen. Uh, but it opens up with that commissioner going hands on and beating the crap out of slam Bradley and slam talks about, yeah, normally a guy comes in, he's broken a lot, whatever he gets beat up by just the regular beat cops. And maybe if it's a murderer, a detective will put his hands on him. But you know, for the commissioner to get involved himself and get his shoes dirty uh, by kicking <laughs> slam Bradley repeatedly, you know, that there's something to be said for what slams done here. Um, and so later in the issue, slam gets his revenge by ambushing the guy in an alley. Um, and beating the crap out of him to the point where the guy has to retire. And that alley ends up being called crime alley because once this, this really fervent commissioner, who's again, not corrupt, but maybe just a situation where the ends don't justify the means, how heavy handed he is. Um, just that zeal apparently his replacement or whomever doesn't really have the same sort of presence or the ability to wield the power or the same zealotry and crime begins to grow at the beginning of the end of Gotham. This Gotham that we have here, which to outward appearances is, you know, an, a, a place of light and brightness and, and no crime and, you know, happiness and all that sort of late fifties nostalgia sort of uh, scenario. Uh, it, it starts heading toward the Gotham that we know crime ridden and dark and seedy and, gritty and all that sort of thing. And so if you look at it a certain way, slam is sort of responsible for that, right? By beating the crap out of this commissioner. And that's when crime um, begins to grow. And that alley where uh, slam ambushed him becomes known as crime alley. And obviously we know crime alley and it's history with the Waynes and it's uh, the uh, creation of Batman and that sort of thing. So it, I, I didn't, ever think about this story in these terms until we got to this issue, because we know that the, the framework story is slam sitting in a hospital bed, the intimation being that he has like cancer or he's just really old, he's dying and he's talking to Batman. He knows Batman's Bruce Wayne. And so when we get to this issue with, with slam telling him, you know, Hey, I, yeah, I beat the crap out of the commissioner and blah, blah. It's almost like a deathbed confession sort of feel all of a sudden, right? Like he's telling Batman, you know, if it wasn't for me, if maybe if I hadn't taken out the commissioner, Crime Alley wouldn't have come into existence. Your parents would still be alive. There would be no Batman. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it good? Is it bad? You know, there's there's all that stuff that you can think about. So like many times with the Tom King story, there are, there are a lot of layers here. Um, and so th I found that to be most interesting in the story because it's kind of subtextual. The other part of the story is just slam. You know, he's, he still wants to find out who's responsible for the death of um, little baby Helen Wayne. Um, and we do find out there's some clues here that um, that it's actually uh, the baby's father who was behind it after all, Richard Wayne, you know, and I got a little bit of a man on fire feel. If you guys know that movie that was made back in the day, I think it was Scott Glenn that, and then they remade it with, um, uh, with Denzel Washington uh, where this, this guy has his daughter kidnapped for the mm -hmm. insurance money basically. And he's supposed to, you know, get the in, in, in ransom money and half goes to the kidnappers and he gets to keep half and his daughter comes back safely and, and all that sort of thing. So I don't know exactly why Richard Wayne may have arranged the kidnapping of his daughter. Um, not so dissimilar as Rocky's pointed out. Um, and Tom King himself, when he was on uh, the show recently, 
mentioned this as well, the, the Lindbergh kidnapping um, and how even though the body of that baby was never found, Charles Lindbergh's son, um, the specter that it was an inside job and Charles Lindbergh Sr. had something to do with it, that sort of followed him to his grave. Like those suspicions never went away. So, uh, and Tom King mentioned the Lindbergh kidnapping being um, some inspiration for the story as well. So uh, how that plays out, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but again, the uh, the artwork uh, by Phil Hester is, is tone perfect. Um, it, and I'll just say <laughs> it, it's just perfect. It suits this crime noir feeling just 100 uh, yeah. percent. And the only other thing I'll mention is, man, Slam Bradley, he really gets the crap kicked out of him repeatedly. <laughs> like every issue, the guy's getting the beat down. Yeah. And he's not supposed to have any superpowers, but he's got to have like some kind of Wolverine healing factor type thing to just or maybe he's just too dumb or too stubborn to just lay down, you know, because, man, this guy really issue after issue is getting the shit kicked out of him. Uh, so, you know, not no surprise that he takes it out on the commissioner when he finally has it, just sneaks up behind him. He talks about how it wasn't, you know, it's not an honorable way to do it, you know, get up behind somebody and whacking them with a bat and then beating the crap out of them. But I don't know, I guess he just had his feel of feel of being beaten and not being able to dish any punishment out. So uh, anyway, what what do you think of this issue, Rock? I, I, I enjoy this issue. I, like the, I like the character work. I like the progression of the story. I like the fact that this is Slam Bradley explaining the his, his, explaining this story to Batman. And one of the questions that has to be asked here, and it's a question that readers would ask themselves at the end of the first issue when it was revealed that an older Slam Bradley in his early 90s is talking to Batman, you got to wonder... Why is he telling Batman the story? How is this relevant to Batman? Well, on the surface, that's an easy question to answer and say, well, it has to do with the kidnapping of Helen Wayne, who is Bruce Wayne's great, great grandmother or grand whatever. Uh, and uh, the Helen Wayne, the, the famous, just like the Lindbergh kidnapping, it's the famous Wayne kidnapping where Princess Helen is murdered. And she's a princess because they're, they're like kings and queens of Gotham, the Wayne family. So Constance and Richard Wayne were considered king and queen in Gotham. And what names Richard and Constance Wayne? And, and their young daughter is murdered. And the fact that Richard Wayne might have something to do with it. And the fact that during the, this, during this incredible crime raw adventure, you know, uh, Slam Bradley gets the crap beat out of him numerous times and, and such that, that the very beating he gives Commissioner Huff in a fit of frustration is in an area of this city that is actually well known to be used by celebrities and by by higher ups and the Gotham's elite would go there. Husbands would go there to basically sleep with high 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 price call girls. And of course, uh, following the beating of Commissioner Huff, people stayed away from it. And so it, it changed the it changed the habits of Gotham's elite once Commissioner Huff had the shit kicked out of him by by Slam Bradley and that ultimately became Crime Alley. I like that. That's adding to the lore and the mysteriousness of Crime of uh, crime Alley. And I really like it. I like that Slam Bradley wants to continue to investigate. He wants to get to the bottom of it. And, and 
And it's it's maybe a little bit tropey and cliche, but this whole series is it's kind of based on the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, I to my knowledge, the lead investigator of the Lindbergh kidnapping, I don't think slept with Charles Lindbergh's wife. But I mean, uh, Slam Bradley ends up doing the nasty with uh, Constance Wayne, who is so tired of having a, an indifferent and, and, and so frustrated with her husband. She's trying of feeling hatred and feeling and feeling lost. And so she she makes up for in the arms of, of Slam Bradley. And of course, you know, you, 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 you can't imagine this high priced, beautiful, this this beautiful woman, Constance Wayne, who's uh, maybe not as slender as she used to be in her own words, but she, she, I mean, Slam Bradley is this tough guy. He's literally, he's the alpha male who's got his crap literally beat out of him. He's beating, he's probably all stiff. And of course, naturally, this is being a crime tale. They're going to sleep together because that's what you do. And then he finds himself, once he's bailed out of prison, he, he finds himself once again in front of Richard Wayne, who maybe is putting on an act, but blames him for the death of his daughter, Helen. And then at the end, we meet up with the Queenie character, this Queenie character, this African-American woman who was sort of like the cat woman of this tale that had something that ended up stealing the money that was supposed to be the ransom money and she insists that Richard Wayne has something to do with it and she never killed she never killed Helen Wayne and so the mystery builds and what what's great about what Tom King has done is that he's told this story, but he's also told the story of Gotham. This is really the story of Gotham City. So even though on the backdrop, we have this analog to a, to a famous kidnapping in our world, this really is about, this is a story about the early beginnings of Gotham City. And I, I actually like it. I like it better, frankly. I, I think it's intriguing. And I like it better than the more sort of mysterious, uh, pretentious history of Gotham City dealing with always oh the mysterious court of owls or dealing with the orgams over in detective comics this feels more real this feels more visceral this feels more crime raw this feels this is in a uh, in a wheelhouse that i just find more interesting and and more entertaining so good comic yeah i don't i don't disagree with you um this is a little more street and you buy it a little more like you like this to me because the the thing that I say, and it's happening in detective comics with the Orgum, and it's happening in the, uh, what is it, the Gilded City one that we're reading where there's this, you know, bat person, you know, he's not an actual bat, but this yeah. vigilante type person back in the, you know, 1880s Old West type bat, uh, Gotham City. It's like you, you put those characters back in the past and then it makes Batman less special, right? Like, well, why did it take a bat flying through the window of, of Wayne Manor for Batman, for Bruce Wayne to get the inspiration to be Batman when there was all these other bat-like characters, you know, back in the history of Gotham. It just, it sort of dim diminishes, but this doesn't, this, the, you know, there's no superheroes in this story. There's no supervillains. Um, and so if, yeah, it just fits better into what my idea of Gotham was uh, before Batman came along. So uh, anyway, speaking of Batman, Batman issue 131 is up next. The Batman of Gotham Part 1 from Chip Zdarsky. Mike, Mike Hawthorne does the pencils. Adriano Di Benedetto does the inks. Tamea Mori on colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, so we saw at the end of last issue, Failsafe uh, shot Bruce Wayne, shot Batman with some sort of weapon. And it outward appearances, he's been killed. He's been like vaporized. Tim Drake, of course, says, no, he hasn't been killed. He's somewhere. We've seen this before, you know, specific at the end of Final Crisis with Darkseid and his Omega Beams. And he actually sent Batman back to prehistoric times, Caveman, Batman, what have you. Um, and that's what Tim believes is, has happened. And 
Yeah, there's a there's a consensus or a feeling among the other heroes that Batman's not really gone. Of course, we know that the way continuity works with DC Comics right now, everything is so loose, it's not going to be mentioned. Apparently, that uh, that Bruce Wayne's missing. So um, we find out in this issue that apparently he's sent to another corner of the multiverse. DC really leaning into that right now. Uh, we don't get um, the name of the Earth. We don't get a number or anything. But what we do know is um, Venom apparently is rampant there. And we, we see a version of Harvey Dent who calls himself a judge and who wanders around in this belted trench coat with a couple of different guns. One, I'm assuming, is a traditional firearm and the other apparently fires tranquilizers. And he goes in and he, he judges people. We're not sure how he chooses who to judge. But he basically goes in and says, are you sane? Are you insane? They're only, these are the only two states that Gotham recognizes, and I'm the judge. I'm the one who decides. Um, so what exactly they're trying to do, he's trying to do, what exactly the rules are, we're not 100% sure. We just know the pain has been dropped into this world. He's still trying to figure it out. Um, he's seeing a, uh, a version of Jim Gordon who's also in a, a trench coat, you know, his traditional brown trench coat, smoking the pipe. But he's a skeleton. He's a skeleton with a mustache. And it looks pretty ridiculous, to be honest with you. Um, uh, and whether or not he's really there or a figment of Bruce's imagination, don't know. Maybe he's a hologram like in Quantum Leap. Not sure. Uh, but Bruce is still trying to recover from his recent battles with Failsafe. And then obviously from being sent you know, through the multiverse to this different corner of the DC Universe. He doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he's trying to figure it out. Um, and he confronts this, what he believes to be a venomized version of Harvey Dent, because when he grabs him from behind, he can kind of smell it, I guess. Um, and so we're not sure exactly what the history of this Gotham city is, why Harvey Dent is this judge and what venom has to do with it. But I suppose we'll find out. Um, so as, Bruce is fighting against him. The building that he's in, uh, this kind of rundown ten tenement, uh, catches fire, and this woman shows up. This young girl shows up to help Bruce escape, and she calls herself Jewel. Um, so shades of uh, Julia Pennyworth, I guess. Except this uh, this girl is African American, so maybe Alfred was black or his wife was in this uh, in this reality. We'll have to see. Uh, but she does help Bruce escape. Uh, meanwhile, this mysterious figure, we have no idea who it is. Um, and he's, he's, his name, he calls himself red masks. He wears a white costume and cloak, but he has a red mask and red gloves. Uh, and it's, it's like a full cowl, um, uh, so to speak. Uh, and we see him in what looks to be like a basement, dungeon operating room type and behind him there are all these people strapped to these tables um some look like they're convulsing they've got blood all over them others have a red mask covering their mouths one person shooting something out of their eyes so we're not exactly sure but being the fact that these people are restrained they're probably not there by by choice um and this red mask is calling selena for some reason and saying hey there, a, a, a Bruce Wayne has been spotted 
And Selena, when she hears about that, is is pretty surprised because the red mask said, "Yeah, he's this guy's alive." So apparently, in this this reality or this part of the multiverse, Bruce, the Bruce Wayne that Selena knows is dead. Um, so whether or not Selena had a relationship with this Bruce, whether there's romantic feelings, we don't know. But this red mask is giving Selena the the uh, mission to go and find him. So we'll see how that all all plays out. Um, kind of an intriguing setup. Um, it's not the most original idea, right? Like the idea of, of Batman supposedly being killed, but actually sent to a different reality. Um, I feel like we've seen this a lot lately. We saw in Tom King's run where he went to a, a reality where Booster Gold had saved his parents, had prevented his parents from being killed. So yeah, it's not, it's not the most original. Um, and we, we just had it with the worlds without a justice league where, uh, we know Pariah put ba- Batman in a, a different version. So it, it really feels like we've had a lot of these type of stories lately, but you know, I'll give Zdarsky the benefit of the doubt to, uh, to play out his hand and, and play in this world and see what he has in, in store for us. So uh, the Mike Hawthorne art, it's a little more fleshed out, a little softer than the last time I saw his art, which was on the Wonder Woman evolution. I think his art here is better. The, the line weights aren't quite so thick and it allows the art to feel a little more organic and a little more kinetic and allows it to f- uh, flow a little better. Um, but it's still recognizable as Mike Hawthorne, which is, you know, going to be really thick lines um, and, and really kind of a heavy feel to the artwork. So uh, overall, this is a, an interesting start. Definitely curious to learn more about who this red mask is and, and what exactly the whole deal is with the venom and and obviously how Bruce is going to get get back. Uh, and then there's a backup that talks a little bit about what was left behind and what Tim is is doing to try to find Bruce. We'll talk about that in a second. But what, are, what were your thoughts on the main story, Rocky? Uh, well, first, uh, Mike Hawthorne's art, art, I didn't recognize his art because it was actually good. <laughs> his art on Wonder Woman Evolution, I thought was just plain bad. It was really, I thought it was... Uh, I, it's unrecognizable. I, I challenge like, well, look, I'm not, I'm not one. I, I don't pretend as I've said this before, I don't pretend to have this, some keen artistic eye, but <laughs> I find this to be almost indistinguishable. Like I, I, I look at this and I think the same guy that drew Wonder Woman evolution drew this. I mean, the line weights are some, this is way, this is way better art. Like I don't, uh, I think this is substantially better art. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that, I mean, whatever, he, whatever he did for Wonder Woman Evolution, I'm glad he stopped doing that because this is much better. Uh, I, I had no problem with this art. It told the story very well. Uh, as the story, as for the story itself, uh, I mean, the bottom line is, uh, as Bruce Wayne says at the end, this, him being, Bruce Wayne ending up uh, on, on this earth is a, a consequence of the, remember that they, the Batman had uploaded a, a compassion virus, so to speak, uh, a compassion virus into the, uh, into the, uh, into failsafe. And as a result of that, it was hoping that failsafe wouldn't kill him, but instead failsafe, uh, sent him to an earth where there wasn't, uh, where Gotham without Batman. And that's a significant thing because now I'm not sure that's, that's a kind of a twisted way for failsafe to say, well, that's my gift to you. I'm sending you to a place, uh, instead of, instead of killing you with the punishment of death, I'm going to punish you by sending you to a place where you don't exist. Uh, 
And I'm not sure if Failsafe realizes that if you send someone to a place where Batman doesn't exist, especially if it's a Gotham where Batman doesn't exist, it might be a real hellhole. <laughs> and it looks like this Gotham is a hellhole, uh, but, you know, you know, a rose by any other name, right? But in any event, I... I thought this I thought this worked rather well and I'm I'm intrigued. I, I like what uh, you know people say that this has been done before. I don't think it's it hasn't been done quite this way before. I think Sardaski's bringing something new to this and in in and I don't think he's I, it doesn't feel pretentious to me. It doesn't feel this feels this feels new to me. I, I feel I I like this approach and I like that we we got these different characters and I I like what I like the fact that Failsafe wasn't about just murdering being a murdering robot bastard terminator he actually has a purpose and i'm i'm really curious to see where this is going so and this uh it's a nice segue into the backup which i also liked which you can uh, speak to now yeah the backup uh, also written by zadarsky miguel mendoka does the art roman stevens on colors clayton callan letters i didn't recognize this as miguel's art which really surprised me when i went back and i was like who did the art um and i feel like it's because the colors are a little bit washed out so I don't know. The art's still good. It just wasn't recognizable to me. I think, um, I don't know. The whole thing looks like it has this muted filter on the on the colors, and I didn't really care for the colors. But uh, anyway, it, it's Tim. He speaks to John at one point, um, yells at him that he's not, he's not dead because John kind of offhandedly, well, I guess now that Batman's dead, Tim kind of flies off the handle. He's not dead. Um and he does have a conversation with Nightwing and Nightwing expresses the same thing. Um, but unlike Tim, so Tim wants to be proactive and go out looking for Batman and Nightwing. He's like, I've been doing this a lot longer than you. I, you know, I have faith in, I have faith in Bruce. He, Batman will find his way back to us. So he's kind of like wants to do a hands off thing and say, we, you know, I, we need to protect Gotham. That's what Bruce would want us to do. Uh, whereas no, we need to go and help him. So kind of a different, um, philosophy, maybe based on the fact how long it's been since Dick has really, um, you know, been an active partner and spent basically night and day with Bruce as opposed to Tim. It's much more recent. Um, or maybe it's just the fact that Tim was there when Batman supposedly got vaporized uh, and, and Dick didn't or wasn't. So we'll have to wait and see how that all, uh, that all plays out. But overall, uh, great line work. And a really fast pace. And I do, I do like, this is one of those times where I do feel like the backup story is like appropriate and, and I won't go so far as to say necessary because we could just get these pages interspersed in the regular story. Um, but unlike a lot of the backup stories that just feel like filler and a reason to charge us an extra buck, this one does feel relevant. Um, so would I rather have it not as a separate backup story and just interspersed in between? Yeah, probably. But then if you do that, you still, you still need the extra page counts. So you're still going to end up paying an, you know, an extra buck or, or it's going to take the story, the main story longer to play out. So, um, but overall, uh, really strong, best, best backup story I can remember in, in a Batman comic, maybe since they started. So, uh, what were your thoughts on the backup? Uh, it was I, I thought it was a little bit too truncated. I wish we would have had more pages because I had to read it a couple times. But as far as I can tell, it, it just shows the toy man. Like for, for the toy man to show up, the toy man is a Superman villain. He shows up in the pay, in the backup feature of Batman, and it's interesting. It's it's it shows 
Toy Man in what I I thought I first thought was maybe a, a a flashback. He's playing with action figures, and he he talks when he's playing with the action figures. He says, "I've spent years chasing this feeling, those precious moments when I was a boy, creating worlds and battles. Now those worlds are real. Now the toys are everything, and I am their god." So Toy Man is creating worlds as we all do when we play with action figures, right? <laughs> and uh, so maybe Toy Man did did Toy Man create that weapon that was used? I, I'm a little confused here because because I'm not really sure how Toy Man relates to this story because then it it, it switches from the page with Toy Man and then it switches to it switches to Tim having a conversation with John and then having a conversation with Nightwing and then at the end all of a sudden John communicates with him and says I just realized something Toy Man killed himself but he may have left some clues well did and then when it, it and he says if Toy Man left some clues but he's saying that while he's in the fortress so was the toy man in the fortress? And so did did toy man play with some of the weapons in the fortress and maybe failsafe didn't realize it? Or I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into this, but I'm a little bit curious. Maybe the weapon used was created by toy man to shoot, you know, to basically, you know, be used against Superman to push him off into another universe so he could play with play with his action figure somehow. Who knows? Because Toy Man is kind of a little bit schizo. Although I should say Toy Man was reformed, but since uh, he was reformed under Bendis when the secret identity was revealed, but now that the secret identity is no longer... Toy Man loses the memory of the secret identity because of the uh, blackout, uh, the mental blackout that we reviewed in Action Comics 1050. So presumably Toy Man is a bad guy again and no longer reformed. But uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, I kind of took it as, yeah, this is a Toy Man weapon that may have may or may not have been modified by failsafe um but yeah basically it was a toy man weapon that superman confiscated from him and put in the fortress of solitude to keep it out of the hands of anybody who shouldn't have it uh, that's kind of how i how i took it uh, but yeah we'll we'll have to wait and see yeah. and this is all speculation on tim's part um but obviously his speculation yeah. is correct being that we got the glimpse of toy man in the yeah. first uh first part of the I, story so i, I wish I, I i wish that it that was made more clear uh, I wish that was made more clear. There was no reference. It, that makes complete sense what you're saying, and you can infer that from, uh, I guess, from the pictures. I guess I, I, I think an, an unnecessary amount of time was spent on on conversations between uh, uh, Tim Drake, John, and Nightwing. But uh, I, I think that, I thought that Tim said something to that effect. That's kind of where I got the the idea. But he says, it's Batman, he's created Sailface, and now he's gone, but the gun was in the Fortress of Solitude because I put it there with that out in space. I didn't know what to do with the weapons these damn supervillains would leave behind. Ah, okay, yeah, then that must be Toy Man. Okay. Yeah. You can infer. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, so that that's kind yeah. of what I got out of it, but yeah, we'll, I guess we'll have to wait. We'll wait and see how it all plays <laughs> out, so. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Poison Ivy number eight. This is from writer G. Willow Wilson, guest artist Adigan Ilhan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Colors Arif Prianto with Ivan Placencia. Letters by Hassan Atman Elhau. Um, pretty standard story in terms of, you know, last issue, we saw Poison Ivy. She's trying to stop this company that um, purports itself to be environmentally friendly, but is actually doing a lot of harm to the environment. And um, Poison Ivy, when she went to confront the CEO of the company, 
got injected with some sort of chemical and it's uh, basically allowing the Lamia spores that are in her body to, to take her over. So in this issue, she gets somebody that's there at the company to, to help her out and to find the antidote. And then she basically gives the CEO what they deserve, which is she doesn't kill her, but she kind of allows the plants that she's been abusing, I guess. It's pretty cruel what she does. Have, yeah, it's sort of have their way with her, which is pretty pretty horrible. Um, it feels like a very self-contained two-part story, um, and it makes I wonder if the, okay is this is this kind of the new reality we we uh, for Poison Ivy speculated when this series started based on the fact she was out there just murdering people, you know what what the status quo for Poison Ivy was going to be. So it sort of feels like, and again I'm completely speculating that we'll probably get a few of these stories where Poison Ivy is just out there in the world being a, an eco-terrorist. I, I use the word terrorist very lightly there. Um, maybe a, an eco-warrior or a, um, a proponent for plant life. And she's just going to go out there and, and take out these corporations, these people making bad decisions that are harming the environment just to do exactly that, to establish a new status quo for poison ivy. That's what it feels like is coming. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, I thought the art by Ilhan was uh, done extremely well in terms of being in the same vein that we've had with almost this plant slash body horror imagery, imagery that we've had in the Poison Ivy uh, title since it started with these Lamia spores. And it's not my favorite style of art. Um, Poison Ivy is not really a character I'm, I'm super invested in, um, but I do like the characterization and the evolution, the character work that G. Willow Wilson has given us from that angry, bitter uh, Pamela Isley that we first got in the first issue because she knew she was dying. Um, and so from there to, you know, basically her healing herself, I guess you'd say, by eating Jason Woodrow, which isn't as gross as it sounds because, <laughs> you know, it's not an actual human body. He's just plants. She's eating her vegetables to cure herself of cancer. Her vegetables being Jason Woodrow. Rotten vegetables. Yeah, rotten, rotten vegetables. So yeah, I mean this this does I, I I would imagine that if you're a Poison Ivy fan, you're probably digging what G. Willow Wilson is doing. And it, it's good comics. Um I'm just not super invested in the character, so it doesn't it's not ultra compelling to me. So anyway, what did uh what did you think? Well, I I'm I got mixed feelings about it because I prefer an evil Ivy. I prefer my poison Ivy more on the evil side and even less of an anti-hero. And I, I like her evil and the occasional anti-hero here. And Jay Willow Wilson is, I, I kind of liked how this started off this first three, four issues that we got before the story arc ended. I was actually, I was actually thinking that I liked it because poison Ivy was, she seemed to be pretty badass, and she was, you know, she was, she was, well, she killed innocent people. I mean, she 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 wasn't particularly. I mean, she's she's frankly relentless and unforgiving, and can be heartless here. And even let's just be blunt. I mean, what she does to Crawley here, Crawley, this this corporate CEO who was uh, uh, Crawley was using her tech uh, and and working with with Jason Woodrow because this Crawley CEO was was working with Jason Woodrow and idolized Jason Woodrow and liked his vision of the world. And while that was not a particularly good vision of the world, she does, Crawley did make mention a number of things to, to Ivy to, 
that that should I would hope make readers think that you know in the battle between corporatism and, and environmentalism, of course corporations always push it too far, but environmentalists have a hard time trying to find that middle ground. And Ivy is is she's she's not particularly about she doesn't deal with compromise very well when it comes to environmental issues. And her the fate that she bestows Crawley here by changing her into a plant. Uh, which will she will likely live forever, immortal as a plant. Uh, in in fact, Holly uh, Ivy even says that Crawley will live. In fact, she will probably outlive all of us as this horror. She looks like she's this plant creature now, and she, Crawley looks like a, not only does she look like a plant creature, she looks like a plant creature in pain. So that looks like a hell of a punishment, worse worse than the death penalty. And again, it just goes to show that. Uh, that's, you know, again, I mean, it, it's this, it's this very, very jarring, we get extremes, we get, on the one hand, Ivy is uh, really, the fate she bestows upon Craw- Crawley is quite harsh. Now, granted, Crawley was pretty cruel to her too. Um, however, but nonetheless, Ivy is equally cruel, but then turns around and then just to cushion the blow, oh, then Ivy takes it upon herself to call in some favors for some surgeons to help this young uh, Janet of the human HR department that, that works under Harley. She loses her medic, she loses her health insurance because obviously she's fired by Crawley. And so she, she can't afford the surgery, uh, her liver surgery. There's a tumor on her sur- uh, liver that needs to be dealt with while poison I- Ivy calls in some favors and gets uh, gets the young uh, gets uh, Janet operated on and again it's a little bit of a nitpick but I'm gonna say it anyway I, I find it hard to believe a little bit that Ivy knows and knows doctors she's just gonna call up a doctor in Seattle like she does here and she pulls in her contacts and says hi it's me it's Ivy yeah the same domestic terrorist and yeah that terrorist the one in the news that the, yeah that that one that's killed numerous yeah that's me I could you do me a favor I well, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that, oh, yeah, no, no problem, Ivy. Yeah, it's almost, I'm sure the doctors here, it would have made more sense to me if Ivy said to the doctors, I want you to save this woman or I'll kill you. That would be more in keeping with the Ivy that I know. I, I don't see all these other doctors. Oh, it's Pamela Ivy. Ivy, how's it going? Yeah. Oh, what? You want me to do a, a patient? You want me to waive a $50,000 fee and just do it out of the goodness of my heart? Yeah, not a problem. Bring Janet over and I'll operate on her. That I find kind of hard to believe. But again, so kind of a one, kind of a convenient way to wrap up the story, and I just wish there was. I, I just find it a little bit. Um, I don't know. I, I want a little bit more of a darker side to my Ivy, but this this is nice, and I agree with you that if for for probably most readers, especially for Harley and Ivy shippers, you'll probably like this story because it doesn't put Ivy over the edge and just like Harley Harley's the sort of the zany happy-go-lucky insane on the outside but good heart in the inside and then Ivy here is always going to be the one that only kills bad people really horrifically but then always comes around to the good side because you got to have you got you always got to have that tease of the Ivy Harley uh, relationship in the background so you can't make either of them too evil and so you got to make them both sort of riding that dark edge and i think that's what's being done here uh to the success the degree to which uh, readers have to judge for themselves <clears throat> yeah I, I agree um because again i think i think somebody who's a big uh ivy fan is going to like this but I, 
I don't yeah. actually know. <laughs> actually, know yeah. because I'm not probably big, right. Yeah. I, so, uh, all right. Up next, we have the man, the Joker, the man who stopped laughing. Number four from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Carmen A. D. Jean Domenico's The Artist, Romulo Fajardo Jr. and Nick Filardi on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, I've said it before. Uh, I just don't think D. Jean Domenico is the right artist for this. This is very much a crime story, and I do appreciate that. I mean, we all know how I feel about The Joker, but The Joker we're getting here, one of two that are in the story, and this is the one that was sort of the, the abandoned Joker, the one that didn't have any resources, shot in the head believes himself certainly to be the real joker and then we have this other joker that's out in california meeting with other crime families trying to establish a, a, a more of a nationwide network of criminals i suppose who's much more suave has more resources seems maybe to be the real joker but you don't really know we haven't seen that much of him this joker's got more of an edge seems to be a little more uh off his rocker um which is kind of the you know insane joker that we've gotten used to over the years but if you go back if you if you turn back the clock and start thinking about you know pre dark knight returns um or pre killing joke uh joker back then was much less criminally insane if you will he was much more of you know the scheming type of villain much more of kind of like the kingpin right like very much a crime lord who manipulated people and manipulated situations to, to gain power. Uh, and yes, he went up against Batman and yes, he wanted uh, to defeat Batman, but it was sort of ancillary to just running a criminal organization. And we've gotten far, far away from that. And now, to be honest, the Joker's primary motivation, maybe his only motivation is to show up Batman. At least that's the way it comes across when I read Joker stories now. So we're getting a little bit of kind of a throwback. And even in this issue, which this entire issue is just this insane, physically damaged Joker trying to escape from the hospital. And eventually Red Hood tracks him down and there's a bit of a confrontation. But this seems to be more of that street level Joker, more uh, of a throwback to an older style Joker, um, <clears throat> who does seem to, yeah, have a little bit of an edge to him and do, does have a touch of insanity, but not completely maniacal in Joker B uh, recently. But um, what I enjoy most is the fact that we might be getting more added to this idea of there being multiple Jokers, which, you know, we were teased for years with the Batman three Jokers uh, from Jeff Johns and Jason Fabok. And when it came out, it was just the biggest dis disappointment for me because we never got any answers and it was just more confusion than anything else. Um, cause we know at the end of the Jeff Johns justice league run, when Batman was on the Mobius chair, there, it was teased that there were multiple jokers. Uh, and we never satisfactorily got an answer that at least not to my satisfaction. So that to me is, is what's most exciting about this, that we might finally get an answer. That might be something that's being explored. Um, but other than that, I was a bit underwhelmed by this issue because it, like, it's just a joker trying to escape from a hospital. There's not really that much that happens in the story. And uh, again, I just think an artist who has a little cleaner style because the story's already confusing enough. And then you have art that's super clear as well. It kind of adds to that feeling. Um, but I do appreciate the tone and I do appreciate, as I said, that Rosenberg seems to be wanting to explore this idea that there's multiple jokers. So uh, what did you think, Rocky? Uh, well, what I found, what I got most out of it is, <laughs> was 
we've been joking and, and talking about the backup features of the Joker, uh, which are drawn by uh, Frank Avila and uh, Francisca Frank Avila, who uh, now he's not always doing the writing on it, but uh, Matthew Rosenberg's been doing the backup. What I really like is the revelation here is that these backup features are actually the comic books that the children in the hospital are reading in this issue. That I thought was a nice touch. I, I, I thought that was really well done. And Joker even jokes about, you know, what about Joker? Well, why is the power girl showing up at my funeral and what have you? He, he jokes about it here as he's talking with the children. And I don't, I don't know if this is the, I, I'm still somewhat confused. I'm not really sure if this is the actual Joker, as if you say it's making more sense that it's probably one of the three, or maybe there's two of the three Jokers. And this Joker does have, this Joker is not completely ruthless. He doesn't kill the children. He doesn't even, he doesn't even kill them. There's a dying woman at the end who actually, he, he pretends to be her long lost uh, you know, there's a dying woman at the end who he pretends to be her die, her long lost husband, uh, and he leaves and and she dies happy. And so the Joker actually, if anything, he kind of semi entertained the kids he, as a clown, albeit a sort of like really an ugly looking clown. But the children didn't seem to be too traumatized by his by him being there, even though he made some bad jokes and uh, he made some bad jokes about them being terminally ill and what have you. Uh, but it. It, it kind of worked in a Joker kind of way. I, I like this issue. I agree with you that really not much happened. He's just, it, this is just this Joker character that we think is, he's either the Joker or he isn't. He's the, originally he's the hostage. Now a shot in the head that now we think he's the, he thinks he's the Joker. Maybe he is. And he's trying to escape the hospital and he has to outrun a bunch of cops, uh, a SWAT team, and also more, more, Importantly, Jason Todd, and he has a really hard time doing that, but he, he successfully managed to do so by the end of the issue. But I thought it I thought it worked. Did it move the story itself forward? No, not really. Uh, but it did further lend believability in my mind that maybe this is the real Joker and your theory from the beginning, which I gotta I gotta say straight up, uh Jace, I thought your theory about Oh, maybe Rosenberg's going with the three Jokers idea. I thought, no, he's not. I just, I just, it didn't, didn't sound right that he would. But then I'm starting to think more and more, maybe you're right. Maybe we're going to get a third Joker showing up here uh, and throw a wrinkle into things. But uh, either way, I, either way it worked. I would have thought that Jeff Johns would have been the guy that would want to move forward with the three Joker idea. But maybe, maybe that's what this is here because it does seem to make sense. And this feels that this could be, an iteration of the Joker to me, and that's what's uh, that's what makes me uh, makes me wonder. And uh, and and as for the backup, uh, I mean, I, I love Zatanna. Frank Avila drawing Zatanna. I mean, that's just hot as hell. So I mean, so I, I love the backup. Uh, again, it's got nothing really to do with the main story, other than the fact that these are the comic books that the kids are reading in the hospital. It, yeah, it adds some context to it. <laughs> They're they're wild and out there. It's, I almost feel like the backups are just a way for Matthew Rosenberg to have a lot of fun telling Joker stories that are completely out of continuity and sometimes don't even make sense. Like from a a physical standpoint, you know, like that's not how physics works, man. That's not how the world works. But yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have sort of Azrael number six. This is the final issue, written by Dan Waters. Art is by Nicola Semegia. 
colors by Marisa Louise, letters by Hassan Atzman Elhow. Um, I sort of feel like the last issue was the best one of the series, and this ended up feeling just a little bit anticlimactic. We do get the final confrontation here between uh, John Paul Valley and uh, and Sariel, and also the the Angel Box, which we have speculated is an orphan box or some kind of um, manipulated or adjusted or um, some sort of uh, mother box technology that's been tampered with, if you will. And so um, whether or not that's actually the case, we, we don't know, but it is destroyed here before Sariel can use it to, to awaken all these other sleeper agents across the world that have been programmed with the system um, you know, which is this, the order of St. Dumas that has made these uh, adjustments, this brainwashing program uh, that gave John Paul Valley the uh, abilities to be uh, Azrael. So he does, he does stop her. He does win the day, but it's not really to the story that we've gotten so far other than, you know, we get this battle and he wins and what's going to become of Sariel, you know, what it remains to be seen. Um, but it does kind of show us who this this new version of Azrael is in action. But we kind of already knew that. Um, but you know, we haven't actually seen him, John Paul Valley, fight against anybody. Um, so I guess that's what, kind of the purpose of this uh, issue. So, you know, I went on record last time. I think it was my, my book of the week even. is saying, I, I love this. I love this more enlightened, for lack of a better term, John Paul Valley, who, you know, um, not to say that he's not going to be religious or have faith or belief or what have you, but it's not, not in the same way. You know, maybe he's going to believe in himself. Maybe he's going to believe in a more esoteric God, it's not the hands on I'm this, you know, sort of, of God. I'm the avenging angel, that sort of thing. He knows all that was just manipulation was just more brainwashing was more mumbo jumbo from the order of, of St. Dumas to control these, um, these Azraels through the years and, and basically use them as pawns to further the, the needs and the um, accumulation of power by the order uh, themselves. So um, we also see Father Valley here, the, the, who, someone who was a villain in the pages of Catwoman, more of an anti-hero here helping out John Paul Valley. And, and why Venom shows up, I mean, again, it, may, it makes sense for the story, but it seems yeah. an odd choice. That the daughter of I said Venom, but Vengeance, yeah. uh, the daughter of supposed daughter of Bane, who's really just a, cl- a female clone of Bane. Um, what like why they chose her to to be in this corner of the Bat Universe? I I'm not sure. It certainly, even though it says the end, and we're not teased that there's going to be any more, it certainly feels like going to be more to come with this this trio, right? This. Asriel maybe he's going to get his own title at some point, maybe with Dawn of DC, who knows? And it would seem that Vengeance and Father Valley would be supporting characters, which it's an interesting choice when you think about the, the trio, right? Like n- none of the three are, are what you can, would consider true heroes. None of them are innocent. None of them have uh, always been on the right side of the law and, and not made poor choices. Certainly Asriel's closer to the, what you would consider a superhero, um, Valley being and and vengeance for that matter being much more on the side of super villain, but not out and out villainy. I mean, the argument could be made that you know Valley's going after Catwoman. She herself was a villain, so isn't he in that way? Uh, you know, on the right side. But then again, he's a hitman, a killer for hire. So 
wouldn't yeah. necessarily consider him a hero either. But in any event, they're all three very flawed, very much live in the gray area. So they're interesting uh, material and, and potential there for story with their interactions and the way they see each other. They All three of them could, you could make an argument, could need to be put on a road to redemption um, because it certainly seems that way. Vengeance here, she has a, a little bit of a, a come to Jesus moment where she's down on her knees confessing that she's made bad choices in her in her short time on, on earth. So um, overall, I, I enjoyed the story, mostly for the changes that it made to Azrael as a character, getting rid of that need to have this heavy religious overtone. It's so interesting, right? Because that's what we were hinted at in the Batman Urban Legends story from Dan Waters. And then when this started off, man, he leaned into it so much with John Paul Valley working at a hospice, praying constantly. And it was like, wait, you tricked me. I thought you were going to get rid of the religion. Instead, you leaned into it even more. Um, but he did that in order to strip it away. So it's almost like, you know, if you're a kid, you always hear this story, right? A kid gets caught smoking and his dad locks him in the closet with a carton of cigarettes and says, you're not coming out till you smoke them all. Uh, so it's kind of like just shove all the religion down our throat so that, you know, we'll get so sick of it that we'll be happy that John Paul Valley kind of is leaving that behind. I mean, I would always be happy with it because I didn't care for that aspect of the character, but maybe some others, um, enjoyed it i'm not really sure but overall i thought it was was pretty solid uh the Semegia art is is the same as it's been throughout it's not my favorite style of art because it's not a really clean um easy to uh, decipher style but it works for the tone of the story and kind of the the big action scene the big fight between azrael and uh and sariel so overall i feel like this was a successful series what did you think rocky I, I think it was, yeah, I think it was a very successful series. I, I, I do think that the early issues uh, suffer from being uh, a little bit convoluted. I think they could have been less convoluted, a little bit more clear in the storytelling. I say that with a degree of ego because I had a hard time piecing it together. And I just I found myself having to reread some of those issues I just recall from past reviews. But here's the thing. Even though I had to reread those issues to catch what was going on and I did get some clarification from you – I was I was impressed. I liked the story. And like you said, this is this is master, you know, it could have I, I still say it could have been told more clear, but it, the story itself is is a master concept that I really like because they needed to get away. It's just nowadays having a a, a religiously based superhero or villain, that's problematic in these times, especially one that's, you know, Roman Catholic and then Order of St. Dumas and, you know, grounded in an actual faith in God. Well, now, now they can, now that DC can relax and do more with John Powell Valley because it all boils down to this, this angel maker, which is, has created over the centuries, a bunch of sleeper agents around the earth uh, that they can call upon for vengeance. That's what this angel maker did. But in this issue, in the battle between in the battle between John Paul Valley and Sauriel, who was going to be the next sleeper agent that that was cre- that was essentially awakened by the angel maker, Sauriel accidentally destroys the uh, the, the 
the angel maker and John Powell Valley shows mercy and he goes against his nature. And this has a huge character impact on vengeance. And you asked the question, why is vengeance in this story? I actually like vengeance in this story because this issue gives vengeance a very good reason to be in this story. And for once, we actually have some good character work on vengeance because she was lost and directionless because as you said, she was just a clone of Bane. I mean, she was kind of a, in the pages of Joker, she just sort of appeared and she was like a clone of Bane and she just seemed to be an angry uh, woman on steroids and a clone and, you know, wanting to avenge her, you know, but, but now she's, she's a, she's a character. She's a clone looking for a purpose. And she was trying to find that purpose in God, but also because she was created as an instrument of vengeance and it is in fact her name, Vengeance. She thought, well, what better, what better service to join than joining Sariel uh, for her cause and vengeance, vengeance in, in pursuit of a higher power or in, in support of, of God himself or herself. And, but when Vengeance discovers here that, that somehow you know, this here's this angel, John Powell Valley, who has this angel, Azrael, was able to change his will to go from vengeance to mercy, to forgiveness. That's a new calling for vengeance. And I'm really curious to see now vengeance moving forward. I really hope future writers don't ignore that that character moment, that character change in 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 vengeance here. And dare I say it, you hinted at it. These three at the end, this final page is my favorite page. It shows, you know, Vengeance and John Paul and, and Father Valley uh, helping uh, an injured John Paul Valley up and taking him to uh, get some medical attention. Imagine these three as a team. I mean, wouldn't that be interesting? I, I'm, I'm not saying DC is going to do that, but I'm intrigued now. Like, and even John Pavelli was shocked at Vengeance's reaction. Like, he just showed a little bit of mercy. And the way Vengeance interpreted that, I think he's got a sidekick, uh, whether he wants it or not, or a partner in Vengeance. Because, you know, Vengeance has a nasty habit of when she, let's face it, if Vengeance wants to be part of your life, I don't think you have the, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell Vengeance to stay away. So it's going to be interesting to see if, if Vengeance is going to be a, maybe a full-time character in this series. And even Father Valley, who, uh, like you say, was a pretty cruel hitman. And did some a lot of cruel things to to, to Catwoman. It's going it's interesting to see what their future holds. So this is Dan Waters has done just a really good job overall here. Yeah, and again, we don't. This is the final issue of this mini series, so we don't know if there's going to be more. But it certainly right. they've left the door open. Um, so I guess it just matters uh, how well it's sold. Um, I, I think that we're. The Batman Urban Legends title is going away, so because uh, that would be where we could possibly see more of this. But uh, you know, it's being replaced by Batman Brave and the Bold, so maybe we'll get some more there. Um, who knows? Uh, but anyway, that does it for the single issues. There is also the the All Ages book, the Batman Nightwatch, has its fifth issue out, uh, and then uh, there's only one collection out. Again, a very light week from DC, uh, but Monkey Prince Volume One, Enter the Monkey, has the first issue. Issues, first six issues of that uh, book out this week. So, uh, all right, book of the week, Rocky. Ah, uh, my pick of the week. Ah, uh, man. Um, I I like this week. I enjoyed this week. You know what? I was going to go with. Uh, I was going to go with Dark Knights of Steel, but after talking about it with you, I'm going to go with. Uh, 
I'm going to go with uh, sort of Azrael, uh, sort of Azrael number six. I like the way that ended. All right, good pick, good pick. Uh, I'm going with Gotham City Year One, uh, number four. So uh, again, I think it's it's masterful that subtextual idea of Slam Bradley deathbed confession or what have you. Uh, you know, feels responsible perhaps for for all of Gotham City turning to crime. Uh, I mean, you know, again, it's not completely his fault, um, but it certainly feels like there's some guilt going on there. So uh, that's my, that's my pick of the week. Great job from uh, Phil Hester and Tom King. Uh, All right. Anything you want to tease that's coming up from uh, your channel? Well, I did, uh, I did my top, my top 10 DC, my top 10 worst DC. It was just too tempting. There was just too many on the list. I had fun with that. I, I think uh, I I might, uh, I I actually, I'm actually going to be doing probably a, I got a number of ideas that I'm still percolating in my head, so I'm. But I I haven't made a decision yet, so uh, I'll, I'll know more in a couple of weeks. But uh, what about yourself? How the uh, twelve days of uh, of uh, your twelve days of uh, comic source? How'd that work out for you? Yeah, it worked out very well. A lot of downloads. People really seem to enjoy it. Uh, got a lot right of on. new followers. So uh, that being said, I you know I wish I could, as I said. Previously, I wish I could do interviews every day, put them out for you every day. It's just not feasible with people's schedules. And if I did that, like I would run out of people to talk to you, right? Because uh, 365 people is is a lot. Comics is a small small community. But that being said, I do have a number of people that, that reached out or I reached out to for 12 Days of Comics Source just for schedule reasons during the holidays that didn't work out. So we'll be doing some more interviews. I have quite a few coming up here in the early part of the year. And then interview kind of stuff will probably slow down until the convention season starts to ramp up. Uh, but yeah, still plenty of people to talk to. Joshua Dysart's going to be coming on soon. Um, and a, a few others. Dan, Dan Didio should be on soon uh, to talk about Frank Miller um, and that whole publishing line. So pl- plenty more of that to come. And then also with the new year ramping up, uh, a lot of people with crowdfunding projects that are kicking off. So uh, we'll have quite a few creators that have crowdfunding uh, projects that are uh, going to be starting soon that will uh, that will come on the show. So keep your ears peeled for that. And uh, I want to thank everybody for all the support. And then obviously our best of the uh, best of the Comic Source 2022 episode will be coming out hopefully before the end of January. Hopefully we'll get it done a lot earlier than we did last year. Uh, so that being said, don't forget to uh, listen wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss out on that fabulous episode. Wherever you get your podcast, just do a search of the Comic Source and subscribe. And if you are listening to us audio only and you've never checked out Rocky's channel, I do encourage you to go to YouTube and subscribe. Just do a search for comic space boom exclamation point. Like this video, comment, let us know what your favorite DC book of the week was. Uh, Ring the notification bell so you don't miss out on any of the new content. You guys know what to do when you're on YouTube. So uh, as I said, we appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. 
All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.